as we begin, watch this. I've been wrestling with purpose. What was I created for? I'm more than what you see on the surface. See beneath my skin and scars. I'm skinned and scarred. Marred and twisted. Scarred by the past I need to be lifted. And sometimes I question my own existence. What was I put here for? In my seams, it seems that there seems to be more. It's like I'm a light, unplugged from the socket. I mean, do I really exist to put money in my pocket? This nine to five feels like a nine to nine. My mind entwined, I pass the time. Life circles me as I wait. What is my estate? I feel like I was made for something great, and yet I can't quite put my finger on it. But when I look at my fingers and I see their design, I realize I'm one of a kind. And something created me. No, someone created me. And that someone made me for a reason. Even though it's clear the past years have been treason, I still sense this drawing, this calling, that even in the midst of my falling, there was someone who died to pick me up, someone who rose to fix me up, someone who's coming back to lift me up. And that someone is Jesus. See, God made me for a purpose. And when I delight in him, it's brought to the surface. I like that. God made me for a purpose, and when I delight in him, it's brought to the surface. Have you ever wondered what's the purpose of your life? For most of us, it's just a shrug of the shoulders in a week. I don't know. But for me in junior and senior high, it was basketball. I started some games, won a few for the team. After high school, there's no basketball. But then it was being a college student, and let me say I wasn't really very good at that. And then it was being a construction worker and a mere ant in an army of busyness, doing my part to help put together what later would be called the happiest place on earth, a.k.a. Disney World. But then it was being a husband and a college student, and then it was a salesman and a college student, and then a skateboard champion and a skateboard park manager and a skateboard park builder, and then once again a college student and an entrepreneur, and then finally a college graduate, and then a father a salesman again, a newspaper deliverer, then an interior designer, a youth group leader, and then a seminary student and a student church pastor, and then a seminary graduate and a regular church pastor, and then a doctoral degree student and a staffing center rep and a church planter, a regular church pastor, a college professor, a helping hands team leader, and finally now an irregular church pastor. Why put you through the blow-by-blows of all that? Because at each of those times, I would have told you my purpose was either what I was working on right then or what I was working toward right then or what I hoped would become of what I was doing right then. But were any of them my purpose, my true purpose? Well, if you told me decades ago as a young man all that I would have gotten to do in some of the things, I wouldn't have believed you. If you'd asked me and told me of some of the places that I've gotten to teach, uh, I wouldn't have believed that or to lead some of the ways I've gotten to lead, be involved in some of the things that I've been involved in, I would have highly doubted you. As a young man, I was very determined 
to live a life of big time significance. And perhaps that appeared to be the case in skateboard competitions and in building skateboard parks and at times in sales and even in college and graduate school and at time being pastor of a couple of different growing churches. But that significance always plateaued and never really broke through with a capital S fading down to insignificance with a little I. I think a lot of us can identify with that in some ways in our own lives. One guy who could probably identify that in the Bible was this guy named Gideon. And let me clarify, this is not the guy who puts Bibles into motel rooms, okay? But it is the name of the organization that named himself after Gideon because they saw some things in his life that they wanted to emulate. And so I'm kind of attracted to him for that reason too because there are things which show us how we too can live significantly. Because when you look at Gideon's life, he shows us how to face and to find victory in the three greatest battles that we have in finding a significant life. And let me say, we're not talking about any kind of significance. We're talking about God's version of significance versus the world's version of significance. Because right now, uh, the world's version of significance is probably on your radar when you hear me say the word significance, isn't it? Great illustration of this is the life of the late Steve Jobs. He was the creator of Apple, which is the most valuable company in the world right now. It's surprising to me because all they sell are computers, phones, tablets, watches, and an internet TV device. And somehow they are more valuable than General Motors, who builds automobiles, more valuable than Walmart that has like a gazillion stores. They're more valuable than Amazon, which literally sells everything on every computer screen around the world. That's Apple. Steve Jobs started the company. He even changed the way we buy music away from compact disc to internet downloads, originally via iPods. He came up with a highly functional tablet called the iPad. He invented smartphones, called it the iPhone. Interestingly, with that one single device, he replaced most all of the devices on this 1991 Radio Shack ad, like an alarm clock, a calculator, a portable music player, an answering machine, a voice recorder, a video camcorder, and computer. Plus, the iPhone also is a digital camera, an internet surfing device, a GPS directional map device, an electronic book. So thus, Steve Jobs lived an amazing life prior to his dying of cancer at age 56. I was so amazed by him that I just had to read his authorized biography that came out after his death. And it revealed his life indeed was off the charts in terms of worldly significance here on earth. At the same time, it revealed his life here on earth apparently appeared to be devoid of any godly significance or connection at all, making you sadly wonder about the impact of that for him eternally. So significance the world's way and significance God's way are two very different and divergent ways that you can live your life. Not that you can't have both, but most important of the two is significance God's way. And Gideon's life is a study of significance God's way. You might say that was on steroids because God shows us in no uncertain terms how to face and how to find victory in the three greatest battles we have in living a significant life God's way. And these three greatest battles involve our living out the potential and the promise that God has made you for. But if we're honest, 
Many people today do not live out that full potential and don't live out that full promise that God did make them for. And Gideon shows, however, how to change that. Because Gideon was a man who surprisingly struggled with deep insecurities, number one. And number two, he seriously doubted that God had anything at all for him to do. Either of those two things sound familiar to you in any way in your life? But for Gideon, even in the midst of his insecurities and his doubts, we see this guy who many would say was the greatest leader of his generation. Well, how does that happen? It happened because God showed Gideon how to overcome his insecurities, how to overcome his doubts. God wants to do the same with you, and he wants to do the same with me. Thus, Gideon's story can help each one of us. So when it comes to significance, there are three major arenas of life in which we have to make some choices that determine if we're going to live in the promise and the potential that God has for us. And the first is you have to discover your identity in him. This comes first because you have to know who you are before you can do what God wants you to do. Harry Truman's the American president who reminds us most of Gideon because he came to leadership late in life and he was relatively unknown before he did. It was kind of like Gideon. He once said this, In reading the lives of great men, I have found the first victory they won was over themselves. It's true, isn't it? Because there's this inner battle, this inner conflict about who I am, how am I going to face life, what do I expect God to do through my life that we all have to face. And so how did it come to be for Gideon? Well, we see that in Judges 6, 11, and 12 in the New Living Translation. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And remember, Gideon was a man who was surprisingly struggled with deep insecurities in his life, number one. Number two, he seriously doubted God ever had anything for him to do. But we see here that God came to him to help him discover his identity, just like he wants to help us to discover our identity in him. And in reading the story, we're going to see that there's a way that doesn't work for you to discover your identity and who you really are. And there's a way that does work in discovering your identity. We're going to look at both of them. But first, here's how it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you look at your circumstances. So friends, don't look at your circumstances trying to figure out who you really are. And Gideon's a perfect example of this because all the Israelites had been under seven years of oppression from the Midianites. Their invading army, they were bigger, they were, had better weapons. What would happen was Israel's crops would be brought in at harvest time. Then the Midianites would swoop in, take all of their food, and take it back to their country. So the Israelites, Gideon's people, were weak and starving through all of this. And this is what Gideon was facing when he was in the wine press threshing out grain so the invading army wouldn't know what he was doing and so he could hang on to a little food for himself. So in essence, he's hiding out in a very real sense as he's working in the wine press. And the truth is, this is a picture of a lot of us. A lot of us work in a wine press too, so to speak. It's a picture of hiding from your potential in some task or something that needs to be done that's right in front of you. Thus, there's some potential or maybe some problem in your life that you have an inkling of, but you hide out from it. So instead of facing it, you think, you know, hey, I'll organize my desk or, you know, I'm going to go straighten out the garage or maybe we should remodel that room. 
There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but we tend to hide out from other tasks from this potential and this promise that God wants to do something with and in our lives. So for Gideon, God shows up to find him hiding in this wine press to tell him, number one, I, God, want you to do something in your life, Gideon. And yet the truth is, friends, in my own life, I've probably hidden out in the wine press many times too. Many times I'm sure God has, has come to me and brought this new challenge in my life. And instead of facing it, what have I done? I've drawn back and I've kind of hidden myself from it. And the reason that we typically hide from challenges and change in our lives is that we're afraid. And maybe you know that about yourself in some way. And that's potentially something that's maybe before you now or has been before you for a while. But God knows that. And he shows up to where Gideon's hiding out. And he does the same thing with you and me. He shows up with a choice. And the choice is, am I going to trust my fear or am I going to trust my heavenly father? That's one of the most important choices of life because it determines the promise and the potential of your life. And that's the choice before Gideon. And the wrong choice, again, is to look at your circumstances. Well, that's not where it's at. Don't look at your circumstances. While the right choice is to listen to what God has to say about you. If you listen to your circumstances say about you, you're never going to ever get to the true promise of your life. So instead, you have to listen to God. Listen to what God has to say about you. So here's Gideon, just like every other day. Last seven years, he's just trying to survive. God shows up, calls this frightened man in a wine press, a mighty hero. And Gideon, you know, he had to look around to see, who's God talking about? Because it can't be me. But God is talking about the potential in Gideon's life. And God loves to do this. We see this in the Bible all the time. He shows up and says, I want your name to be Abraham because you're going to be the father of many nations when he didn't even have a kid. But God's talking about the promise that he wants to fulfill in and through Abraham's life. Jesus does this as well with a disciple named Simon, saying, I'm going to rename you Peter, which means the rock. When Simon was the most impulsive, (laughs) impetuous of all the disciples, yet Jesus says, yep, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. Because Jesus sees the potential in Peter and the promise of what God wants to do through Peter's life. Same thing's true of you and of me. And I anticipate when we are open enough to hear that from God, that will change everything. You won't look different, but you'll see differently. And so what would surprise you to hear God say to you? Because for Gideon to hear God say, Gideon, you're a mighty hero, that was a complete surprise to him. So what's God saying in your heart? What's God saying in your mind about who you are? And so the question becomes, is your life becoming determined by your view of you or by God's view of you? And if you're like me, sometimes the answer can go in both directions. And here's the thing, however, our view of ourselves will never live up to God's potential of our lives. It can only be found in God's view of you. And that's what Gideon was learning that day. And so, here's where it starts. It starts with discovering your true identity. You are a child of God. That's the first key to unlocking your promise and your potential. And here's the second. You have to discover, and in that discovery, decide what it is you're going to do. So, when Gideon hears God's promise for his life... 
his reaction's a lot like ours. He, first of all, doubts that God's speaking to him, and then he vents his frustration about what's going on around him in his life. We see this in Judges 6, 13 and 14 in the New Living Translation. Sir, Gideon said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. And so when it comes to our discovering, and in that discovering, deciding what to do, here again, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. What doesn't work is to wait. And that is, wait for the strength that you don't have. We can say, okay, I have a sense of what I should do. And when I have the strength, man, I'm going to launch into that and I'm going to really pursue it. But friends, that's one of the greatest traps of life. This is the wait till I have more trap. When I have more time, then I'll act. When I have more money, then I'll act. When I have more energy, then I'll act. When I get more help, then I'll act. And you can end up waiting for the rest of your life for something that's never, ever going to come. You don't wait for the strength you don't have. Instead, you go now in the strength you do have. Well, God showed me this very thing about going in the strength that you do have this last year. You know, a year ago, I got pneumonia. And I discovered I had but three quarters of my lung capacity. And I was feeling it every day especially when doing strenuous stuff like riding a bike or surfing. I'd almost given up on riding the bike. And surfing was very difficult because I was always short of breath. And all I could think about after every wave I rode was, oh, I'm so unable to catch my breath. And, but then somehow, after months of that, I stopped listening to that fear of being out of breath. And I, after one particularly good ride one day, thought, man, that was so much fun. And instead of waiting the usual two minutes for me to paddle back out again, I said, that was so much fun. I can't wait to get out and catch the next wave. And right there, instead of focusing on what I didn't have, I started focusing on what I did have. Then I got right back out. And since then, my breath has been getting stronger and stronger. And I feel like I'm in as good a shape as I've ever been at 66 years young. We typically say, God, when you give me more time, or God, when you give me more money, or God, when you give me more energy, more help, more resources, then I'll act. Until then, I'm just going to wait on you. But you don't want to get in a waiting game with God because he's got a whole lot more time than you and I. And that's what God said to Gideon. Am I not sending you? And since I'm sending you, Gideon, go with the strength that you do have because I've got your back and you'll have what you need. Pastor Ray Stedman uh, said this, many people never discover what God wants to do in their lives because they keep waiting to feel powerful before they act. But no, you won't feel powerful to meet the needs around you because what you do is you go to meet them and suddenly you discover there is an unusual power at work. And so if you think you're just going to wait till you receive some super spiritual power in your life before you're going to act, you'll be waiting for the rest of your life. That's what Gideon learned from God that day, how to live a significant life. Stop waiting for what you don't have and start using whatever God's given you right now. 
So Gideon discovers who he is in God's eyes, also discovers, and in that discovery decides what God wants him to do. And then Gideon faces the third major battle, and how in the world am I going to do this? And this is the battle of discovering God's capacity. First, you discover, number one, your identity, not by your circumstances, but by God, who he says you are. And secondly, you discover what you're going to do. What doesn't work is wait for the strength that you don't have and start using whatever God's given you right now. And then, then you get to discover what God's going to interject and how God's going to move and what God is going to do for you to reach his promise and his potential in your life. For many of us, this really is the main issue. We have discovered who we are. We have a sense of what we're to do, but we have no idea how God is going to pull it off. And that's what we're not to do here. We're not to try to figure out how God is going to do it. It just doesn't work that way. Doing that puts you right back in the waiting mode, and it limits what God can do. Trying to figure out what God's going to do wrestles control away from God and attempts to put it back in our own hands. It never works because God is stretching us. God is growing us. And this is what God shows us in the story of Gideon. And this is where you will see the real heart of the matter, where you'll see God transforming your weakness. And that doesn't mean that he's going to turn your weakness into strength, but what it means is watch God as he maneuvers around and maneuvers through your weaknesses for you to discover the promise and the potential in your life. And so what weaknesses are particular to you? Could it be a lack of energy, a lack of ability, a lack of experience? Could it be a handicap of some type, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Could it be a past hurt or anxiety about the future? Something which clearly screams at you that you don't have what it takes. But look at how God taught Gideon this truth. In Judges 7th chapter, Gideon's about to go up against an army of 135,000 trained men with an army of only about 32,000. And in Judges 7, 2, in the New Living Translation, the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. That's kind of crazy because at this point they're outnumbered four to one. So in one of the funniest of all stories in the Bible is this. God decides to reduce Gideon's army from 32,000 down all the way to 300, okay? To the level of total and absolute dependence on God. Because God says they need to know that I'm giving this victory and to bring the army down to a smaller size. God does a couple things. First, he tells Gideon to say to the army, if anyone doesn't feel like fighting today, you can go home. And since they're already only 32,000 to 135,000, and many are probably facing certain death, this offer, if you don't really want to die today, you can go home, is one that 22,000 people uh, took up. And they went up and they got home. It's amazing to me in that that even 10,000 stayed. But 22,000 immediately go home. So Gideon says, all right, God, now obviously we're just depending on you. God says, no. I want to make this really, really clear to you. So let's do this test. And the test will determine who's going to be in the army, who's not going to be in the army. Gideon's, I'm sure, thinking of some warrior's test like, 
spear throwing or, or bow and arrow shooting, something like that. And God goes, no, 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 no. Here's the test. Take everybody down to the water and watch how they drink. Some are going to lay flat on their belly, and they're going to slurp directly out of the stream. Others are going to go down there and slurp out of their hands. And God goes, I want you to take the hand slurpers over the stream slurpers. And Gideon's going, what kind of test is this? Some commentators have thought that perhaps those drinking out of their hands would be better warriors because they were looking around. That has nothing to do with it. The reason God said to take the hand slurpers is because only 300 guys did that. He's going for the smallest possible number. Now Gideon's facing an army of 135,000 trained soldiers with only 300 people. How in the world is that going to happen? Well, look at Judges 7, 16 in the New Living Translation. He divided 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar and a torch. And so now God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle the enemy, put the clay jar over the torch, and after the signal that Gideon gives, go ahead and break the jar so that the light shines out, and then blow the bugle so it will seem to their army that they are immediately surrounded by a bigger army. And so I'll confuse them. They'll fight each other, and that's the way the victory will be won. How in the world could that work? Only in God's power, working in the weakness of that plan, could that work? Can you imagine being one of those 300 standing there beyond 100,000 trained soldiers holding your bugle, your torch, and your jar, and thinking again, how could this ever work? But because they all trusted and they obeyed God, God brought them this incredible victory. That's a question for all of us. Are we going to trust God in our weaknesses too? Because he uses our weaknesses to glory. You see, this is the process that God wants us to get because he repeats it over and over and over to us again in the Bible. Sixth chapter in verses 9 through 11 in the NIV here of this large crowd that followed Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus asked, well, how much food do we have? And so some with small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far is that going to go amongst so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And the men sat down. There's about 5,000 of them. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Man, oh man, human capacity, human resources here were enough to feed five people. And yet the scripture tells us Jesus fed 5,000 men, and that doesn't account for probably the 5,000 women and 5,000 children. What humanly would feed five people fed more than 15,000. And that's very much like it is with our Helping Hands ministry. God has also helped us, number one, to discover our identity to help people. And he constantly shows us, number two, Sunday by Sunday, what it is we're to do. Just a couple of weeks ago, I met Guy at his mobile home thinking maybe we could help fix a small section of his outer wall. But Guy's greatest need was his roof began leaking in more and more places. And so what he really needed was something to cover his roof to stop the many leaks that he was just unable to fix. So God changed what I thought that we were supposed to do into doing what God wanted to do and that would help Guy and Gina the most. So the big question was how? Well, I called Paul, and he suggested a single sheet of six mil plastic that would be seamless to cover over the roof, and then a method for holding it down. Our roofer friend Joe said, hey, that's a good plan. And so Paul put together a list of materials, 
we were all set. Except for the fact that I didn't going to accomplish it. Because we really didn't have a clear plan on how to do that. I didn't know how we were going to pull it off. When I started working on this very message, and I got to this very point of discovering God's capacity. It was then I realized that I didn't need to know how we were going to pull off covering Guy's roof and securing it because that fell under God's capacity and he would figure it out and guide us, which indeed he did. Now, I had envisioned at least four to six hours of work, but actually we did it in just two hours immediately, and I mean immediately afterwards, God caused it to rain just to make his point. God wanted us to realize all of this fell under capacity. You see, that's the way God works. God helps us discover our identity in him. Let's discover what we're to do, and then we discover God's capacity to make it all happen. And he adds in his part that we could never see or we could never imagine if we just would position ourselves to let him do it again and again and again, because that's what he wants, for us to position ourselves to let him do it in our lives. It's the same thing we see in 1 Samuel 17.50 in the New Century Version. So David defeated the Philistine with only a sling and a stone. He hit him and killed him. He did not even have a sword in his hand. Again, it wasn't David's thing to figure this all out. He identified himself with God, number one. That was his identity. He discovered that someone needed to defeat Goliath. And somehow God said to David, number two, you do it. But the capacity to hear God tell him that and to muster the courage to go out there and face that giant, which none of the thousands of soldiers much more trained for battle than he was behind him were afraid to do. And then to face and kill Goliath, that was the capacity of God kicking in and pouring into David's life and into that situation. The young boy in his weakness and in his faith invited God's capacity to show up and to do his thing, empowering him to overpower Goliath. And that's how it works. Singer and songwriter of Casting Crowns, Mark Hall, tells of using this story about God's capacity coming out of David's weakness to overcome Goliath in his song, the voice of truth. In fact, Mark Hall says, actually this song and all the songs of casting crowns that he writes, they all come out of God's capacity through Mark's week. Uh, I had dyslexia and ADD, uh, so school was always a nightmare. I, I was always in the, in the little class that you didn't want anybody to know you were in. Uh, so it made school tough. It made church tough uh, because they always called me to read. I don't know how. like I had a sign over my head or something. And uh, so by about fourth or fifth grade, I figured out you're different and you're not as much as everybody else. So you just need that. And I think I was for a long time. And and uh, I remember getting into the Word finally at about age 20 and read in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul wasn't perfect. And that blew me away. You know, the more you go to church, you realize everybody's sick, but nobody has any problems. You know, we're hearts and organs and brains and livers. and <laughs> Nobody's marriage is in trouble. Nobody's addicted to anything. Nobody's struggled anything. And I thought, I'm the only loser in this church, you know. And, and uh, what I started seeing, Scripture is Paul boasts more about his weakness than he does about what he's doing right. You know, I, I think the world is hearing the wrong story from the church. 
what they need to hear from us is, man, I'm a train wreck, and I'm not doing any of this right, and God saved my life, and he stays with me, and I'm still a big dork, and somehow he just restores me. And, stay. and, and that is the truth story. You know, uh, In the middle of the course, it says, this is for my glory. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have this weakness because it's going to point people to me. Yes, God's voice of truth tells us, number one, discover your identity in me. And then two, let me help you discover what you're to do. And afterwards, as you step out in faith, thirdly, discover and witness my capacity to make it happen. That's a critical point we all face over and over and over again in our lives. Judges 7-7 in the New Living Translation we see there, 
The Lord told Gideon, with 300 men, I will rescue you. With 300 men, I'll rescue you. I'll give you victory over the Midianites to send all the others home. And at that point, having the 10,000 men left to fight the 135,000, Gideon sends 9,700 home. And God ends in his capacity, and the Midianites are thrown in confusion. They end up fighting and killing each other. That's how it works. And so many of the stories in the Bible, and that's how it works in your life and in my life. God wants to use what little we have to show how great he is, even through our weakness. So don't let your weakness, don't let your failures become fears that control you. Because God wants to do something in your life. God wants to do something through your life. And that something depends on you opening the door to God's capacity to work in your life. And so, won't you do that? And won't you join me in prayer? Father, I want my identity to be determined, not by the circumstances around me, but what you say about me. That's what I want. And Father, I want to do what you've asked me to do. So instead of waiting for the strength I don't have, I want to go in the strength I do have right now that you've given me. So make me that kind of man. Make me that kind of woman. I want you to work, Father. You to work in the midst of my weakness with your incredible capacity to help me to open the door for your capacity to work in and through my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.